you'd open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's about for prayer. Father in heaven, Again, we just want to express to you our thankfulness, Lord. Thankfulness to you for being so faithful to us. Really being faithful to yourself, which results in you being faithful to us. You're good and kind, always watching over us. And for that, we are grateful. Fathers, we continue to worship you this morning. We now turn to where we have dedicated this time to the reading and the studying and the declaration of your word. Father, we ask, as always, that you will give to us understanding, insight, that you will continue to give to us a great hunger to understand and to know your word. That, Father, be the desire of our heart to be changed, to be influenced, to be challenged by the truth of your word. That, Father, we may grow stronger in the faith. That, Father, we may walk in wisdom. And that our joy may increase. And so, Father, we thank you for the time that we have here today. We ask that you bless our time in your word, as we know that you will it glorifies Jesus Christ. And we do ask these things in his name. Amen. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. In one of the commentaries that I was looking at, Kent Hughes says this, he says, when Spain had extended her conquest to the ends of the then-known world and controlled both sides of the Mediterranean at the Straits of Gibraltar, which is called the fabled the Pillars of Hercules, Spain put on her coins proudly the picture of the pillars framing, framing a scroll and inscribed with these Latin words, ne, ne plus ultra, meaning no more beyond. The pillars gated the end of the earth. But as we know, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and he discovered the new world. And so Spain had to admit her ignorance and struck the negative nay from her coinage, leaving the words plus ultra, meaning more beyond. The change from the myopic no more beyond to the expansive more beyond affected a revolution in world culture, global economy, and geopolitics. So it's not hard for us to understand that that change serves as a handy example to what is needed when it comes to the spiritual geography of modern men and women. Because so many people live in the stifling delusion that there is no more beyond. Sadly, there are many Christians who live as if this is it. And you see it everywhere. The way that people live, the way they express themselves, the way they look at death, the way they understand death, what they do when death comes, they believe that this is it. So plus ultra 
perfectly describes Paul's focus and the ultimate focus, really, of the whole of Scripture, and in particular what we've been looking at here in 2 Corinthians. So the parallel thought, ne plus ultra and plus ultra, God's promise of a glorified body gives hope and peace to the believer. It gives the Christian hope in the sense that his home is not here, it is in heaven. So one of the Puritan authors wrote this. He says, for many centuries, innumerable people stood beside the dark hole of that we call a grave, and they watched the remains of their loved ones lowered into the earth, and they wondered, beyond the dark waters of death, is there anything beyond, or is this it? Is life knee plus ultra, no more beyond? Then one day a young man went westward into the setting sun and descended into the blackness of the pit of death. People waited expectantly to see if he would keep his promise and come back. On the third day, as the sun arose in the east, the Son of God stepped forth from the grave and declared, plus ultra, there is something more beyond. There is a paradise beyond your greatest expectations. There awaits a heavenly Father waiting with outstretched arms to wipe away every tear from your cheek. This truth should help us to keep one eye on eternity. Which I believe, when you think about that, why it's so important for us to look at the first couple of words that Paul uses in verse 1, where he says, For we know. He doesn't say this is our best guess. He doesn't say we speculate. He doesn't say, well, the evidence points us in this direction, so therefore we believe. He says, for we know. The word for there indicates that Paul really is continuing his train of thought. He's explaining in more detail what he just said. Remember what Paul has been speaking about. He has been contrasting that which is temporary with that which is eternal. He's talked about the momentary light affliction, and he's compared that with the eternal weight of glory. He talks about that which is seen, which is temporary, with that which is not seen, which is eternal. And now he is explaining that these changes are going to take place as he contrasts the earthly body, the present earthly body, with the future heavenly body. There was a preacher down in Texas back in the 1970s, 1980s, and he said this. He says, I think it would be something like this. I've been talking to you about afflictions. I've been telling you how they lead to the eternal weight of glory. The dissolution of the body, the dismantling of this tent does not bring annihilation. It brings translation to glory. That is why I look at the things that are not seen, not the things that are seen. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God. That's why the apostle can experience those things that he's experiencing. Why he can look to the things that are invisible rather than the things that are visible and pass through all of these experiences with confidence and assurance. Because even if I lose my life in the midst of them, I know I have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Too often what happens is, like our society, we don't really think much about our future demise. I'm not saying that we should be morbid and we should walk around all the time saying we're going to die. We're going to die one day. We're all going to die. I'm not saying we should do that. But I do think it's important as we read through the scripture, when that topic comes up, which is more than once, 
We are to spend time thinking about what the Word of God says about it. You see, when we continue to to focus and meditate on what the Scripture says, remember that we are feeding on the Word of God. The Spirit of God that indwells each one of us as believers is feeding us this truth that comes from Scripture. That then will strengthen our faith, our trust in God. That strengthens our trust in what God has said. God has spoken about our future. He has spoken about what death really is, why it is here, and what is beyond the grave. So then as we grow as Christians, as we age physically, we should, as believers, become much more confident and comfortable when it comes to death. It doesn't mean, again, that we are looking forward to our death. It doesn't mean that we're trying to make our death come sooner. But we don't respond like the world. There there is no sense of panic. There is a sense of comfort, a sense of ease. It doesn't mean that you won't have any moments of anxiousness. Again, I believe part of that is normal. For many people, I do think that a majority of that anxiousness really not... It doesn't really come from the fact that we're going to die. It's the way we're going to die. You know, we we all would like it to be like really quick. Or like, I go to sleep at night and I just don't wake up here. You know, when we think of things like drowning or what have you, it just kind of, we just just don't like that. That that moment just, you know, when you take your last, I guess, gulp of water if if you're drowning. You know, just kind of, you know, freaks us out a little bit. But there is this idea that we are to become comfortable. And I do think that if we don't spend any time thinking about it, then it is possible at that moment, and we we don't even know how we're going to die, but at that moment when that time comes, or maybe when you are facing death because you are much older and you know it's coming, or perhaps you're sick, or whatever the, the case may happen to be, panic can easily come into play. Emotions can easily take over. I do believe that our emotions follow what we know to be true. Meaning that when when that panic sets in, even though others may try to help us to overcome that fear at that moment with the truth of Scripture, and they should, it is much easier to help an individual overcome that fear if they're already convinced of the truth of the Bible and of the truth of death. The, The emotion doesn't have to dominate your life. You are better able to control that. Or maybe we could say it is much more under control. You're you're no longer, you're you're not panicking. Even if you get a twinge of anxiousness, that's really all that it is. It's a twin of anxiousness. Because the truth in your mind is so strong. This is not mind over matter. This is not some psychological exercise. This is believing in the actual truth of what the Word of God says. This does have a definite effect on your heart and my heart now. As you and I become much more convinced of the truth of Scripture when it comes to what Paul is talking about, it is already working on the inner man. So then when that time comes, which we don't know when that's going to be, but when that time comes, we are already better prepared. And so then our emotions will not be what they would have been if we had been simply living like the world. And so there is this cumulative effect of, again, reading the Word of God, studying the Word of God, believing the Word of God, embracing the Word of God, 
digesting the word of God that definitely continues to cause you and I to change. You, your, the change in your life and the change in my life is not always necessarily seen because we're overcoming all these sins. There are many sins we've already overcome. But as we continue to grow as believers, sometimes there is this inner strength that is growing that is not yet visible to others, maybe even ourselves, but we are becoming more convinced of the truth of Scripture. There is a very real comfort that is there. It is, I believe, that peace that God grants us that is beyond human explanation. The, the average non-believer is not going to get it. We are able to understand it because we understand it is, it is faith in action. Again, our faith is not just wishing or hoping that it's all going to work out in the end. It is really more of a knowing. I, I know what is there. Yes, there's a wee bit of anxiousness just because I'm a human being living in a body that is cursed by sin and the flesh is weak. But I do not have to live in fear. There is no need for us to live in fear. But we don't wait. Don't wait until you're 80 to start thinking about death. Don't wait till you're 70 to start thinking about death. We want, we want to think about it much sooner. I had a great time with one of my old friends when I went back home. It was a guy I hadn't seen in 40 years. And we were talking about a lot of different things to catch up. And through the course of the conversation, he talked to me about the death of his father. Oh, no, I'm sorry, the death of his uncle. His father's still alive. Uh, death of his uncle. And he said when his uncle died, it really began to affect him. He began to think a lot more about life and about death and the end that we all face. And the Lord used that greatly in his life. Now, he was in his, uh, I believe, in his 50s when this took place. And as a result of that, he became a believer in Christ. And he and his family started going to church and joined a church. And he's been there ever since. In one sense, the odds were against him, so to speak, uh, just because in his family there was a lot of, I, I would say, spiritual confusion. Uh, some of his relatives were Jehovah's Witnesses and some were Mormons and I mean, the list goes on. There's all kinds of things influencing uh, him in his life. But he came to the truth of the, of the word of God. What a marvelous thing to have those things settled in your life. So I, I want you as a believer to have these things settled in your life. I'm not looking forward to burying more of you. I've buried believers, but I know that's, that's reality. And... I am not against ministering to you and you and I sitting and talking together when that time for you comes, if you happen to go before I go. What I don't want to have to do is to urge you out of a panic. What I want to be able to do is to comfort you with what you already know to be true. I want to be able to remind you what we know to be true. I want there to be very real comfort from just sharing together what the Word of God says. In a sense... To hear it once again. You know, it is the same when it comes to our human relationships. You know, you know that your children and your grandchildren love you and you love them. But don't we like to hear it again when they say they love us? It's reassuring. It's not that we think somehow, uh-oh, my grandson hasn't said he's loved me for two days now. No, it's not that. But it's still reassuring. It's really beautiful 
to hear. We, we like to hear that. Or when a couple's been married for a long time, you know, and you entertain each other by teasing each other and annoying each other. And it can be fun. But even if you've been married for a long time, when there's those moments when, when one of you, or maybe both of you, get real, real serious and you look into the other person's eyes, and after 30 years or what have you, you can look at them and say with all sincerity that you love them. That's a great, that's a great feeling. We, we like that. That's what I want to be able to do when, when you approach that time. Now, I will not, if you're panicking, say, well, look, I preached a sermon once. You should have listened to them. There ain't nothing I can do for you. I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm going to go back and reassure you from the scripture. But I don't want you to have to go through that. I want you to be able to embrace what Paul is saying here. Because Paul is not just going through empty rhetoric. Remember, Paul is a man who's faced very real death several times. Not just facing it because it could have happened, but faced it because it almost did happen. Where he was left for dead more than once. I've never been in that situation where people left the scene because they thought I was dead. That's not happened. So he's, he's been there. He's experienced that. And he says it with great confidence. And he wants them to be aware of this and to know this. Another way to understand this is this. The longing for the resurrection body motivates us to focus on the spiritual ministry even at the expense of physical suffering. Future glory inspires courage and commitment in living to please our Lord. Present suffering should intensify the longing for future glory, the resurrection of the body. Knowing these truths that speak of our future should motivate and energize our personal life. This is, this is the kind of strength we sometimes hear about uh, when you read about in the 1800s when there was a great missionary movement. I know I've mentioned to you before that it was not uncommon that when individuals would go on the mission field, when they would pack their bags to go and say goodbye to their families, there was the knowledge that they would never see their family again. It, it, they weren't coming home on furlough. There was no furlough back then. In fact, many of them, one of, their, of the trunks that they would pack their belongings in was their coffin. They had their coffin made, and they would put their belongings in that, and that was shipped with them. There was this expectation they would die in the land they were going. They didn't know when they were going to die. They didn't know if they were going to have a long ministry or a short ministry. And they, even though there were tears when they said goodbye, there was no hesitation. And there wasn't a few who did this. Because in the 1800s, when you look through church history, uh, there's, there's a period of time that's called the Great Missionary Movement. Because thousands of believers, that's what they did. H how do you do that? Well, it's right here. There's a longing for the resurrection. They were motivated to focus on spiritual ministry at the expense of physical suffering. There was just, there, were, there was no second guessing. They were ready to go. Most of us, maybe all of us, God's not called us to go to another country and die there or to die an unexpected death in another country. Some, some may face that. But nonetheless, we all face the same thing. The, the end is the same for all of us, at least until the Lord returns. In fact, when you look back at that verse 
Verse 1 again. He says, for we know that if the tent, the word if there, there's a, a collection, there's a, a, a series of books called uh, Greek Word Studies by A.T. Robertson. And he was a Greek scholar. And he said the word if there uh, is, and this is what he says, a third, gla- third class condition and first aorist passive subjunctive. Isn't that great? Let's go on. No. I'll explain to you what that means. All right? Because you know, it's like, oh, okay. All right? What that means is the word if suggests uncertainty regarding the time, but not concerning the fact. It's not a hypothetical if. It's a chronological if. It really means when this tent is destroyed, it's going to be replaced with a building from God, a building that is eternal in heaven and not made with hands. This is a passage that is often read again at funerals. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 50, where Paul writes, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. What he means by that is this present flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. This is perishing. Our bodies are perishing right now. We know that it's obviously perished when it dies. He says that what we're going to receive from God when this eternal life begins, it is, an, it is a life where there is, it is imperishable. So what's perishable cannot inherit that. And so he says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Everyone's not going to die. We understand that when the Lord returns, some will bypass death. But we all shall be changed. All believers will be changed by God. He says it's in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Just so you know, the twinkling of an eye is not winking and it's not blinking. It's much faster than that. It's, it'd be kind of, it's kind of like this. Um, let's say you haven't, there's someone that you were close to when you were a kid. And you haven't seen them for 40 or 50 years. And then you suddenly see them again. And you don't, rec- you don't recognize who the person is. Until maybe they say something. And all of a sudden there's that instant recognition. That's, that's the twinkling of an eye. Boom. It happens. That's how quickly this is. He says, the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. For you and I to inherit what God has for us, this must happen. And this is exactly what's going to happen. When Paul uses the word tent here in this passage, he uses it in a couple other places, but it is an idiom, meaning to be physically alive. It refers to a temporary abode, a temporary residence, uh, as opposed to a permanent structure. In Job chapter 14, verse 14, it says, If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come. Proverbs 23, 18, Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. The New American Standard of the same verse reads, Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. So what Paul says here in this is, For we know that if... Again, meaning when, this is going to happen one day, if this tent, he says, uh, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have. We have there means to possess. 
the present tense of the verb speaks of this as our present and continual possession. I already possess this. My body's not changed yet, but I possess this. Again, in the strongest terms possible, this is going to happen. We are assured the prospect of possession, as certain as if it were in our hands, laid up in the heavens for us. So John uses this present tense in a very similar way when he writes in John chapter 3, verse 36, about you and I having or possessing eternal life. John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That means you possess eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Paul wants to be sure that his readers here in 2 Corinthians know this truth about the future to allow us to live in light of the truth about this present life. In other words, it is something that is, in a sense, always there. It is not that you are consciously thinking about it, but you are so convinced of the truth of it, it really never goes away. That whenever you are confronted with anything in life, that truth instantly helps to shape your thoughts and your reaction to things. It's just, it's there. Because you know this. Because you're convinced of this. Because you trust in what God has said. Because the Spirit of God has helped to implant this deep into our hearts and minds. And we spent time meditating on this. And we know the character of God. And we know that He keeps His promises. Because He is true in all things. The building from God, again, is an actual possession in virtue of our union with Jesus Christ. Paul, again, as we see, he changes metaphors to signify that meaning. So the first word, tent, is temporary, this present life. The second word is building. It shows enduring or eternal. A building is more substantial than a tent. It conveys the idea of permanence. So again, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands. It is a house for your soul, is the idea there. It is eternal in the heavens. When he uses the expression that is not made with hands, what he means by that is not of this creation. Listen to Hebrews 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and the more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. So it is not of this creation. It is this new work that God does. What Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, is that whereas our present bodies are suited to life on this earth, our future glorified bodies will not be of this present creation. They will be especially designed for eternal life, our life as we say it, in heaven. The phrase, not made with hands, states that in contrast to something that is temporary and impure and incomplete and really corrupted, that is made with hands, it is replaced with something that is enduring, that it is incorruptible, and it is uncorruptible and finished, something made by God. Sin is dealt with and destroyed, no longer to affect us, and we receive this new body. It is a guarantee. There is nothing that I can say that is going to more greatly convince you of this truth. This is a truth in the Word of God that all of us as believers embrace by faith. Again, embracing it by faith is not just believing in something unseen. It doesn't mean that, there's, that it is not rational. It is a rational, actually, I believe, a logical thing for us to believe. It is logical to believe God because God has never lied. 
because God knows all things. God has created all things. All things are sustained by the word of his power. There is no more sure thing than the word of God. There is nothing that we know of that is more sure and true than what God has spoken. And so based on that, I know this is my future, and you can know this is your future. And that gives to us a great deal to praise the Lord and to thank him for, and it should shape the way we live our life, the way we approach life, the way we react to life, the way that we respond. I want to read to you in closing a passage from the book of Job. What I think is amazing is Job did not have what we have. He did not know about the finished person and work of Jesus Christ, because Christ hadn't come yet. We're not even sure where he got all this from. It was from the Lord, but he didn't have the, even the Old Testament as we know the Old Testament. We know that he believed in God and was considered to be true and faithful to God. Listen to what he says, Job 19. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Paul, Job here is so convinced of this that it would cause him to pass out, cause his heart to fail thinking about the greatness of that moment. I'm fairly convinced, no matter if you have many or just a few doubts about some things in the Bible, for whatever the reason, if you could see God face to face, somewhere within those first few moments, perhaps when you start breathing again, you would say, it's just all true. You'd be so overwhelmed by his magnificence and by his glory that by coming to God face to face, you would immediately at that moment have zero doubts of anything contained in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. You'd be overwhelmed with the truthfulness of all that God is and all that God has said. We all look forward to that day. We can be convinced in the weakness of our flesh now because God has given to us his spirit and he's given to us his word. And I want you to have, I want all of us to possess that so that again when it comes to life and death, there is no hesitation, there is no doubt, there is no panic. There is even a looking forward to that time, a looking forward to that new body. Not a looking forward to leaving family and loved ones here, but at the same time able to do so because we know that we will be joined together one day in the future. And that we will have imperishable bodies. When we possess those things, when God makes us different, there will no longer be fading glory. We will remain as we are at that moment for all of eternity. 
And those that we love that are believers will remain as they are at that moment for all of eternity. We will never have to say goodbye again. We will never have to face sickness. We'll never have to go see a dying friend in the hospital. We'll never have to dread a doctor's visit where someone is told they have cancer because there won't be a need for doctors because that won't happen. It's almost impossible to imagine how great and marvelous and wonderful it's going to be. And that is worth looking forward to. And the world does think that you and I are nuts for believing that. And that's okay. Because, you know, they're putting their faith and trust in something that's not as true and as sure as God himself. We can know God. We do know God. He's not asking us to believe this against logic and against that which is rational. It is the most natural thing, I believe, that we can do. It does not violate any intellectual law of any kind. It is the foundation of all of that. It is the root of that. And we can stand firm. And I want you this morning, and I want to be encouraged of the truth of this, so that we then can live freely for God, no longer having the fear of death hanging over our heads. Because as again, as Paul says here in verse 1, for we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the truth of your word. We thank you, Father, for helping us and clarifying for us the most difficult aspects of life, which is death. We thank you, Lord, for the assurances, for the promises, for the information, for the details that you've given us. We thank you, Lord, that you've not left us without a witness. We thank you, Lord, you've not left us alone without your spirit. And I pray, Lord, that all of us as believers, that we will be strengthened by this and encouraged by this. I do know, Lord, that there may be some here today who don't really like thinking about their death and are still very apprehensive. For some of those individuals, Father, they may be newer believers or not yet solidified in their faith. And we pray that you will bless them and encourage them and that they would continue to seek you and seek your word and you would strengthen them. But, Father, there will be those also who are apprehensive because they have no sense of certainty. Their apprehensiveness is actually fear because they are unsure as to what lies beyond the grave. And they are afraid of what lies beyond the grave. And they should be. We pray, Lord, that in your kindness and firmness, we pray, Lord, that you would help them to see and to understand the truth of your word. And that life is found in the gift of your son and what he did for us on the cross. I pray, Lord, they would seek your face. They would confess to you their sin and believe in Christ. That they may possess what we possess. That they may have the joy that we have. We thank you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Before we sing our final closing song, let me just remind you that if you are one of those individuals that maybe perhaps you were apprehensive about your own death, I want you to know that there is comfort in the word of God. We're not looking just to give someone psychological comfort so they feel better about themselves, but actual truth. 
And God wants you to come to him with your eyes wide open. He wants you to know the truth. And so I would encourage you, whether it's today or tomorrow, whether it's with me or someone else that's here that you know, whether it's in a conversation or conversation in person or through email or text or whatever, I encourage you to ask questions, to seek the Lord, to seek to understand the gospel and how this gift of salvation can belong to you. And you can possess what most of us here this morning possess. Not because we're smarter, not because we're better, but because perhaps like you, we understood clearly that we were separated from God because of our sin. And we needed Christ. And God has made provision for our salvation. And it is given to us freely by him. And so I would encourage you to, to reach out to someone, to pray, to seek God so that you may discover and embrace this truth as well.